Well, good morning. If you would, join me in the book of Philippians, chapter number three, please, the third chapter in the book of Philippians. And I hope everyone's doing well on this fine spring Sunday morning that we have. What a blessing, isn't it, to wake up and uh, see some remnants of winter still with us. I told you that my uh, oldest daughter got her driver's license a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, as parents, we have a responsibility to raise our children and to teach them certain things. And I'm grateful to share with you that one of the things that I taught my daughter about driving is when you live in Northeast Ohio, you do not put the ice scraper away until at least mid-May, right? At least until mid-May. I had a couple of folks wish me Merry Christmas this morning, and that was an encouragement and a blessing. And I did have one dear lady say, no, we, 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 we actually go a step further than that. We don't put the shovel away until at least June. I think that's probably wise, probably makes some sense, but it could be a whole lot worse. And we're glad that you're here this morning. Thank you for braving the elements. Of course, um, obviously not everybody that's affiliated with Cleveland Baptist Church attends Heritage Christian School, but many of our students do. And uh, this week uh, ahead in front of us is spring break. And so as we look around the room this morning, we can see some empty places where folks would normally be. And uh, we're glad that folks have an opportunity to get away and spend some time together as a family. And many of them headed for warm weather environments. I can't understand that, can you? But they did. And we're glad that they're there. And we hope again that God gives them a wonderful, wonderful time away. I want to encourage you back tonight at six o'clock, if you would, for our Sunday evening service. Sunday night at Cleveland Baptist Church is truly a special time which really the whole church is able to be together. On Sunday morning, we obviously have our 9.30 service. We have our 11 o'clock service. We've got our children's ministries going on. And there's people all over the property, all over the building. And a Sunday night allows us all to be together. And it really is a special time. Tonight will be unique because we will have an opportunity for a church business meeting. And these are things that we do usually once or twice a year in which we just kind of bring the church family up to speed on where we are and how the Lord is blessing. And so I want to encourage you to be in your place tonight Uh, If you love Cleveland Baptist as your church home, I think you'll want to be a part of that. Some of you may not be able to be here for for one reason or another, but of course we do live stream all of our services with the exception of the 930 service on Sunday morning. And so you can catch that online uh, there wherever you may be tonight. But if you don't have anywhere to be, be here and be in God's house. And I know that you'll be glad that you did. Our coffee shop will be open after the service tonight and opportunities again for fellowship. There is a youth uh, group meeting tonight uh, for some young people out in the school gym and doing some different things. And so uh, again, a busy, busy place. Philippians chapter number three is where we'll find our text. We're going to begin reading in verse number one, and uh, we'll read down through verse number two. And we are working our way through the book of Philippians together. And uh, this morning, we're going to tackle two verses. That's it. And next Sunday, we're going to tackle one verse. But there's so much in these verses that uh, we believe are helpful and, and needful and necessary for us to hear in this hour. And so follow along with me as I read the Bible says in verse number one, finally, my brethren. Now, when you hear those words, finally, from a preacher, what goes through your mind? I was telling the crowd at 9.30, I said I, have a, I had an opportunity when I was a boy to go to my, the church my mom was raised in. My mom was born and raised in Lima, Ohio, and she attended the Lima Baptist Temple. And her, uh, her pastor, from when she was a young girl, uh, he was famous for saying something like this. Now, now, as we finish this morning, and I would, as a boy, I would be like, yes, we're almost out of here. And then he'd go for like another 20, 25 minutes. I thought that's cruel and unusual punishment right there, right? You know, the Apostle Paul does the same thing right here. He goes, finally, my brethren, and he's only halfway through the book. So, so lesson, lesson for, for those of you, when a preacher says, finally, don't believe him. 
He's not finally nothing. He's got a long ways to go. And he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. The title of the message this morning is this, authentic spiritual leadership. Authentic spiritual leadership. Father, we pray that you'd bless the reading of your word. Or would you help us as we dive into this text this morning together? Just two verses, and yet so much here for us to break down and for us to discuss and for us to teach and to preach. Help us, Lord, with the limited amount of time that we have available to us. Lord, to take full advantage of these folks and their willingness to be here and to listen and to participate in what you're doing in this place. Lord, I am well aware that these folks have not come to hear a message from me. Lord, they've come to hear a message from you. In reality, Lord, it really doesn't matter a whole lot what I think or what I have to say because I'm just like anybody else in this room. I'm a man subject to like passions as they are. Lord, my word is really not sufficient in this hour, but your word is desperately needed. Help us, Lord, as we dive into this text together. Lord, would you fill us with your spirit and would you help each and every individual to be willing to surrender their heart and their life to whatever it is that you may speak to them about here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, Jesus warned that in his kingdom, leadership and authority would look a lot different than it does here in this world. And I'm thankful for that because I don't know about you, but I think most of us have been disappointed in the leaders of this world and of this earth. Jesus actually told his followers in Matthew chapter number 20, he said, he said this, ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them or those that are under their authority. And they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, look around you. Analyze the, the, the princes of the Gentiles. Look at, look, at the, look at the president, look at the mayor, look at the governor, look at the boss down the street, look at the CEO, and, and, and look, at these, look at the kings and the queens and the, and the princes and the prime ministers of the world. And he's saying this, he said, analyze the way that they lead and watch how they, how they exercise authority and how they exercise dominion. And then he says this, and then he says, don't be like them. And that's what he's saying here. And I got to tell you, that's a struggle for us because the way that they lead is the way that the flesh naturally leads. It, it can be sort of, a, of an imposing of our will upon those that are under us. It's sort of a demanding style of leadership. Do it because I said, do it because I'm in charge. And, and, and it sort of can be a self-seeking fleshly style of leadership. Likely you've heard someone talk about their leadership position. They talked about how great it is to be the leader because, well, I don't have to do this and I don't have to do that and I tell someone to take care of that and I tell somebody else to do this and to do that. And Jesus is saying, listen to that, key in on that, and then do the exact opposite. That's what he's saying in the text. Now let's keep, let's keep reading a little bit further. Matthew 20, and he says this, but it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you let him be your 
minister. We use that term sometimes to say we want to minister to people. You know what that means? That means we want to help them. That means we want to bear their burdens. That means we literally want to come alongside of them and maybe pick up a little bit of the load that they're carrying so that they do not have to carry it all themselves. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, if you want to be influential, if you want to, if you want to be a prince in many respects in my kingdom, he says, minister to other people. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Why do we have such a hard time? Why do we want to read books and, and analyze the leadership uh, skills and abilities of all of these people? And yet what Jesus says is, follow me. Consider that when I came to this earth, I did not come to be ministered unto, but I came to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. I willingly laid down my life as a leader. We think of leadership as picking ourselves up and as lording over people and exercising dominion over people. And Jesus says, that's not how it is at all. Follow me, follow my example. But because we're surrounded by the world, it is not uncommon at all, is it? It's not uncommon for spiritual leadership to look a whole lot more like the leadership that is exhibited by the princes of the Gentiles than by the leadership that is exhibited by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let that sink in for just a moment. All of us, all of us can think of, of pastors that we've read about or maybe, maybe even some of you sat underneath a pastor like this in which really his leadership style reflected more the leadership style of the princes of the Gentiles than it did the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he sort of viewed the church as sort of his kingdom and he was the king and, and, uh, and his family were the queens and the princes and the princesses of this kingdom. And, and uh, you know, they walked around as if they owned the place and they didn't have time for anybody else. They wanted everybody to have time for them and to make time for them. And Jesus says, hold on a minute. That's not the way that I designed it to be. No, no, we ought to consider the leadership style of the Lord Jesus Christ as you consider your spiritual life, understand this. The Bible indicates that every believer ought to have a pastor or a spiritual leader. And yet, sadly, because many spiritual leaders have, have reflected really more the leadership style of the princes of the Gentiles and the Lord Jesus Christ, there are a lot of believers that are sort of turned off by the local church and sort of turned off by pastoral leadership and, and, and the lack of really pastoral accountability. Therefore, we've got lots of people that really don't have a pastor. They don't have someone to lead them and to guide them. And yet the scriptures indicate that every believer ought to have a pastor. The apostle Paul wrote to the, to the, to the believers in, in the book of Hebrews, and he said this in verse number seven of chapter 13. <clears throat> he said, remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. You skip down 10 verses and you come to verse number 17. And he sort of echoes what he said before. This time, instead of saying, remember them, he says, obey them that have the rule over you and submit to yourselves, uh, submit yourselves for they watch for your souls. Now, how do we know he's talking about spiritual leadership here as opposed to a civil leadership or a governmental leadership? <clears throat> well, uh, how, many, how many government leaders do you have in your life who speak unto you the word of God? <laughs> Not very many, right? 
I'm thankful as far as I know. I've read a lot of the documents of our, and so a lot of the quotes and statements of our founding fathers. They weren't perfect. They had some issues and some struggles, no doubt, that are sort of magnified in this day of, in, and age. But, but we, do, we do understand this, that they, they built a lot of what they had here in the United States of America upon the foundation of the word of God. And I'm thankful for that. But it's very rare, it's very rare in which we have a president or we have a governor or we have a senator, a congressman that is speaking unto us the word of God. And, and, and beyond that, we, we don't have political leaders. They're not watching for our souls. No, they're, they're given to watch for our physical safety and to make sure that we have the things that are necessary to live life and to be productive members of society. But they're not given to us to watch for our souls. So when he says they speak unto us the word of God and they watch for your souls, there's no doubt in my mind that he is speaking directly and specifically about the idea of spiritual leaders. And here's what Paul writes. He's writing to every believer and he says, you ought to remember these people and you ought to obey these people. Talk about spiritual leaders. Now I have to tell you that every, I believe every believer ought to have a pastor. Someone who knows you. Someone who you can call when you are dealing with heartache and struggles and troubles in your life. Someone who can pray with you. Someone who can pray and minister to your family. Someone who's able to speak into your life on a daily basis. You need a pastor. There's a lot of people that, that have been content because of the day and age in which we live in, and they're satisfied with their, with their television pastor, or with their radio pastor, or with their YouTube pastor. And I'm not here to disparage men who have ministries in which you know, their ministry and their message goes into thousands, if not millions of homes. I'm thankful that God has, has given us that technology and that ability, but I'm here to tell you that that man is not sufficient in your life. He can teach you some things. He can help you. But who are you going to call? Who are you going to call when you've been diagnosed with cancer? Oh, you can call this prayer line, but you'll never get a chance to talk to him. He might send you a letter, and it might look like he autographed it himself, but I've got a little secret for you. The secret is this. He has lots of secretaries and lots of people, and he's got a computer program that just affixes his signature. Likely, he's never heard your name. He doesn't know where you live or how much money you've given to him and to his ministry. Who's going to marry your children? Who's going who's gonna to bury you? Who's going to be there at the hospital to pray over you when you're facing surgery or when you've had a major sickness that has come on you? Or who's going to be there when you lose your job and you need to talk to someone and you need spiritual encouragement? I'm just simply saying every believer needs a pastor. The need, however, for a pastor does not eliminate at all the responsibility that pastors and spiritual leaders have to lead in the right way. In other words, I cannot, I cannot stand here and say, well, you need a pastor and you're stuck with me, therefore I, 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 I get to do anything that I want to do and you just sort of have to put up with it. doesn't work that way. No, no, there's, there's pastoral accountability. Did you know that there are expectations put upon the man of God? If he's going to serve in that role, if he's going to serve in that capacity, the word of God gives us some parameters in which he is to live his life. We discover, we discover these things in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and in Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. 
In, in other words, not just anybody who desires an office or a position or a title can function as a pastor. No, he's supposed to, he's supposed to live his life in a, in a way in which is in, in, in direct correlation with what the word of God has laid out. Let me give you just a couple of those. This is not the purpose of our message, but let me just share them with you. Just a few of them. Did you know that God expects for the pastor that he not be a man who is greedy of filthy lucre? Now, we would hear that and we, some of you might say, well, I don't even know what that means. But the very, the very word in the beginning, greedy, kind of gives us a clue, doesn't it? Greedy, of course, oftentimes we think of greed as it relates to money and finances, and that's exactly what the word of God is saying. That the pastor ought not to be in the ministry for the purpose of just getting rich and having lots of money and having lots of financial independence. If that's the pastor, if that's his mindset, he's not going to be a very successful pastor. He's not going to be there very long because most pastors I know are not getting rich off of the ministry. It's another qualification that's given. He is not to be a striker. He is not to be a brawler. Now, if you, if you were watching the news one night and you turned on the news and, and, and they showed footage from a, a fight down the street at Walmart and I was right in the middle of the thing throwing haymakers and punches and kicking people and screaming and biting people, you'd sit there and you'd be like, you know, I'm gonna find another church next Sunday. Because <laughs> I'm not real thrilled about going to a church where the pastor is involved in brawls down at Walmart. Now, those things happen, don't get me wrong, but the pastor ought not to be in the middle of the thing, right? That doesn't mean that the pastor can't stand up and he ought not to fight for truth and for liberty and for freedom and, and fight for the truth of the Bible, but we're not talking necessarily about a, a fight when it comes to punching and kicking and biting and screaming. We're talking about a fight that comes to the weapons. Listen, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. In other words, the weapons that were given in Scripture, none of them are physical weapons with the exception of the Word of God. And while the Word of God is a physical weapon, it's really more of a spiritual weapon than anything. Did you know that the pastor is to only be the husband of one wife? Now, there have been some that have taken that a, a step too far and they've said, well, that means just one wife at a time. <laughs> That's not what it means. That's not what it means. Here's what it means. It means the pastor ought to be someone who's never been divorced. He married he married right the first time and his marriage, you know, stood the test of time and he rules his home and his family well. They're in subjection. They're following him. They're, they're in obedience to what he has given them to do and what the calling of God is upon his life. I'm just simply saying, listen, not just anybody can stand in this role and can dictate or have spiritual leadership. No, no, there are expectations that are given throughout scripture. Can I say the greatest spiritual leader ever was Christ? We've already identified that, and yet so many times we as men and even as women, we want to imitate or we want to study the leadership of the princes of the Gentiles, but in reality, what we need to do is we need to look to the Word of God, look to Scripture, look at Jesus' life and the way that he ministered and the way that he led. But I have to tell you, the Apostle Paul also was a great man as far as spiritual leadership is concerned. And yet, and yet, even though Paul had great responsibility, he had a title of an apostle, he had great influence, he was inspired by God to write 13 of the 27 New Testament books, even though he had all of those credentials behind his name, he still, listen, get a, get a hold of this, he was still quick to remind his followers that they had no obligation to follow him apart from his willingness to follow Christ. I'll let that sink in for a moment. The great apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 and verse number one, be ye followers of me, and there's not a period there. 
It's not, listen, it is not a blind following that we're to give to the man of God, to the preacher, even to the apostle. He said, be ye followers of me, comma, even as I also am of Christ. See, as a spiritual leader, listen, I have no, I have no right to lead you in the way that I think you ought to go. I said a moment ago in my prayer, and I mean this sincerely, you all have not come here this morning to hear a message from me. That's not why you're here. If you were going to hear a message from me, then you know, you'd, you'd probably end up just staying home because I really don't have much to say. You've come here because you've anticipated, you've expected that I've met with God this week. And that God has given me a message to preach from God's word. And I just want you to know something. You should, listen, you should follow me so long, so long as I'm following Christ. So long as I'm preaching this book to you. So long as I'm passionate about winning souls to Christ and advancing the kingdom of Christ here on this earth and doing things the Bible way, you ought to follow me. But the minute, listen, the minute that you see in me a disloyalty to this book, and an unwillingness to follow the leadership of Christ, you, listen, you have every right and even you have a responsibility to say, it's time to find a new pastor. Because spiritual leadership, listen, it's not about me. You're to, you're to follow me so long as you can see in me a desire, a willingness, a, a heartbeat to follow Christ. The moment, the moment that that disappears is the moment that it's time to find a new pastor for the Cleveland Baptist Church. So we're talking, listen, we're talking about authentic spiritual leadership. This has been abused in some places. There have been pastors, there have been spiritual leaders who, who, have, who have not met the qualifications that are given and maybe the people are spiritually ignorant to know that there's even qualifications in the Bible that are spelled out very clearly or maybe they know that there is a violation here but they're just satisfied to say, you know, we're, we're, we're good with just kind of doing it our own way. And I'm just simply saying, listen, God lays out what his expectations are for the local church and for spiritual leadership in the local church. I say the office and role of a pastor spiritual leader is a very serious calling and a very serious responsibility in which, again, the Apostle Paul gives much instruction. And even here I find, in these two verses, I find really three key evidences or characteristics that are really to be found in the lives of those who will serve as pastors and spiritual leaders who are called by God to this role. You say, well, why do we need to know about these things? There, there's only one pastor here in this church. There's only a few men that serve in that role here in this church. Why, why do we need to know these things? You need to know these things, number one, so that you can identify them and make sure and hold your pastor accountable in these areas. You need to know them because it, it may be that you don't always attend the Cleveland Baptist Church. Maybe God moves you away from here for one reason or another. And you need to be able to know as you go into a church, what is it that I'm looking for? What type of person ought to serve as the pastor of my home and of my family and of my own spiritual soul? You need to know these things. You also need to know these things because it's likely maybe there's a young man in this room, a, a, uh, even an older man in this room, in which God maybe hasn't necessarily called you yet, but he's going to someday. You in your mind ought to be thinking to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm always willing. Some of you are sitting here and you're 50, 55 years old and you're thinking, whew, <laughs> I survived. I got through life and God didn't call me. I want you to know something. I've met men God called in their 50s to preach. It can still be done. Keep a tender heart to the Lord's leading and the Lord's direction in your life. And determine, listen, God may never call me, but if he does, if he has a desire to call me, I want to make sure that I'm living my life in such a way where he could do so without question whatsoever. 
that I'm measuring up to the qualifications and the things that are found here. Can I share the three things that I discover about authentic spiritual leadership? I want to share them with you. Number one, I want to say this, that spiritual leaders should be known by their joy. Spiritual leaders should be known by their joy. Now look in verse number one. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now it's a good thing he, it's a good thing he added that qualifier to rejoice in the Lord. Because to be very honest with you, at this point in time in Paul's life, he really didn't have a whole lot to rejoice in other than the Lord. Notice Paul doesn't just say, Paul doesn't just say rejoice. He says rejoice in the Lord. In other words, you're not not given the command to rejoice necessarily in your circumstances because some of you right now don't have circumstances to rejoice a whole lot in. We don't rejoice based on our career. We don't rejoice based upon our physical health or how we're feeling today. He, He doesn't say rejoice if you woke up today feeling really good. Because if that were the truth, probably most of us on most days, especially as we age and get older, we don't have a whole lot to rejoice about. This body begins to begins to break down and it begins to deteriorate. And more days, more days than not, we wake up and we feel sort of lousy and we don't feel the best. And we begin to struggle and we have our issues and we have our problems. He does not say to rejoice in your physical health. Rejoice in the way that you're feeling. Rejoice in your bank account. No, he says rejoice in the Lord. Now, how often should we rejoice in the Lord? Well, he gives us the answer in Philippians 4. And in verse number 4, he says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now you say, well, Paul, that's easy for you to say. It's easy for you to say, but I bet while you're writing this, I bet you're living on easy street. I bet you've got a corner office. I bet you're sitting at a plush desk and you're enjoying life. Not so. We're given to understand, as Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he's in a Roman jail. This would have been more like a a dungeon than it would have been an actual jail as we think of that today. And and yet yet Paul, sitting in this Roman prison, uh, not because he had committed some evil crime and he's doing the time because of some wicked thing that he's done. No, he's sitting in this prison because he has ministered faithfully and has preached God's word faithfully. And yet he still says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Can 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 I say this? Listen, when you stop to think about your God, and you start to think about your Savior, there's never a time in which you can't rejoice. I start to think about all that God has done for me, and it puts a smile on my face, and it puts joy in my heart. Oh, I may not have joy in the fact that it snowed last night, but you know what? I have joy in the fact that I'm going, I'm going to a land someday where there will never be any snow. At least as far as I know, the Bible doesn't talk about snow in, in heaven. I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna assume that it's not there. I, um, I may not rejoice in the way that I'm feeling this morning. I may be feeling a little lousy. I, my, my body may be aching in certain places. I heard someone say one time, when you each reach the age of 40 and beyond, the pain never goes away, it just relocates. And I think there's probably some truth in that. But you know, I, I may not be able to rejoice in how I'm feeling today, but I can rejoice in this. There's a day coming in which I'm gonna feel good for all of eternity. Some of you here today, and, and, and there, at one time there was someone precious who used to sit next to you in church and used to sing hymns with you, but the Lord took them home. 
And you're not rejoicing necessarily that your loved one is no longer here on this earth and that when you visit them, you have to go to a cemetery and stand in front of a headstone and reflect on their lives. And, and you don't rejoice in the fact that you can't talk to them and, and, and that you can't be with them and, and, and live life with them. But here's what you can rejoice in. A day is coming in which you're going to be reunited with them for all of eternity. We can rejoice in that. I can rejoice in the fact that my God and my Savior has given me this book serves as a roadmap and a guide for me throughout life. I can rejoice in the fact that when I got saved, God gave me a gift. That gift was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit took up residence inside my life. And when I come to a point in time in my life when I'm not exactly sure what to do, what the next step that I should take is, here's what I can do. I can consult God's word and I can listen to the Holy Spirit's leadership and direction in my life. And I, listen, I can sail through life smoothly because God has given me these precious gifts. I'm just simply saying, listen, you and I, you and I have much to rejoice in today. God's been very good to us. Can I say the spiritual leaders should be full of joy and rejoicing? You should, listen, you should come to church and you should have a smile on your face because of your time here. You should. You should, you should come to church and you should be full of joy that you can go to the house of God. That was the psalmist, wasn't it? He said, he said man, I'd rather, I'd, rather, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than be anywhere else, enjoying anything else. He said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I'm just simply saying, listen, if you come to church week after week and you leave because you've been in, impacted by a, a sort of a sour in his spirit and his disposition, spiritual leader, you probably need to find another place to worship. I'm just simply saying that, listen, the man of God, the preacher, the spiritual leader, he ought to be known for his joy. I've met, I've met pastors. I've met missionaries that sort of, they sort of have a long look on their face all the time. And I don't, I don't know much about people who, who lead like that. That doesn't seem to me the way that someone who is full of the Holy Ghost ought to lead. That doesn't mean that there's a time that we be serious and that we be sober. I think the Bible calls us to that as well. But I, I think this, I think that we ought, to, uh, we ought to minister with joy. You know, there's only one prophet in the Bible that's known as the weeping prophet, is Jeremiah. That doesn't mean the other prophets didn't weep, that they didn't have heartache, they didn't have difficulty. But as far as we know, there's only one that that was the primary element of his ministry. It was weeping, was sorrow and heartache. Oh, there is sorrow and there is heartache in ministry. But a faithful minister, a faithful man of God, he rejoices in the Lord. He, he doesn't live in his problems. He doesn't live in his sorrow and in his heartache. No, no, he rises above that. He seeks God and he seeks God's face and he leads others to do the same. There's something wrong. There's something wrong with a believer that can't hardly smile. I remember when I was a little boy, I'd start to get mopey about something and maybe something didn't quite go my way and I'd sort of get a frown on my face and and uh, really, whatever I was moping about really wasn't all that big of a deal. And my dad used to say something like this. He'd say, Peter, don't smile. Your face might crack. Have you ever had somebody say that to them like that? My dad used to say that to me all the time. And I would, I would do one of these numbers. And then I'd start smiling. I couldn't help myself, you know. Because what, what he was saying was true, you know. Put a smile on your face. It's really not all that bad. And some of you are saying, well, wait a minute. You don't. You don't know the person I work with. You don't know the person I'm married to. I hope you're not saying that this morning. Wait a minute. You don't know where I live. You don't know the problems I'm having with my car. You don't, you don't know my pastor. 
Hey, listen, don't smile. Your face might crack. Do, do you good every once in a while to put a smile on your face? Even in church, even in church, we can smile and we can enjoy the things of God. I want you to know something. Someone who struggles in that area and they, and they just walk around always cast down by their burdens and by their problems and by their issues. I want you to know, listen, that type of person lives that way. They're living in direct violation of the scripture and its teaching. Because the Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Not, not rejoice in your physical health, not rejoice in your job or your career, not rejoice in how you're feeling. No, no, rejoice in the Lord. If we stop to think about it, we've got a lot to rejoice in, don't we? Number two, not only should a spiritual leader be known for his joy, but a spiritual leader should be known by their consistency. Number two, by their consistency. Look in verse number one again. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And look what he says there. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Now, now, if you're in the habit of marking your Bible, underline that phrase, to write the same things to you. Most Bible scholars believe that, that Paul is, is essentially, he's writing in this epistle the same things that he had already taught them and had already preached to them when he was in their midst and he was among them. So in other words, get a hold of this. He is, he is just repeating in written form all that he had shared with them in verbal form when he had been with them. In other words, he is rehearsing, listen, he is rehearsing his ministry among them. He is basically saying, listen, the things that I have preached to you, the things that I've preached everywhere that I've been, I'm gonna write them again. And he says, that's not grievous for me. He says, because it is needful for you, because it is safe for you to hear these things over and over and over and over again. And I was a young person, I learned a key phrase. And the key phrase is this, repetition is the key to learning. Repetition is the key to learning. In other words, in other words, the more that you and I hear a matter, a fact, a truth, whatever it may be, the better off we are in remembering and retaining that. So I can still remember in my mind, as a boy, I can still remember uh, re reciting the times tables when I was in elementary school. And I can remember sitting in class, sitting at my desk, and the teacher would have her little flashcards up there, and she would say, you know, one times one is one, one times two is two, one times three, and then the two, two family, and then the three family, and the four family. And here I am, some 35 years removed, 30 years removed, whatever the case might be, and I still know that seven times eight equals uh, oh, 56. Seven times eight equals 56. Why? Because, because someone, someone drilled that into me over and over and over and over and over again. And sometimes we as Christians have the audacity to say, well, we're going to go to church again. And I bet the preacher's going to talk about Jesus again. I bet the preacher's going to talk about surrender again. Listen, that ought not to be grievous to you. I don't have to be grievous to hear the message of Jesus. Tell it to me over and over and over again. You ought ne never to tire of it. You ought never to get weary of it. No, the message of the gospel is a message that should be repeated over and over and over again. And I'm thankful Paul had this ministry. He says, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I've been saying this everywhere I've gone for years and years and years. And he says, I have not changed. I'm gonna write the same things I've been saying after all these years. You know what I love? I love the fact that here we are as a church. We're almost 64 years old as a church. We're 64 years old in August. And I'm thankful we're preaching on the same Bible that we were preaching on from day one. 
And I'm thankful that we're preaching the same Jesus that we've been preaching all these years and that we've held to the same doctrine that we have held to all of these years. Oh, maybe there's been a few things that have been changed, but nothing doctrinally, nothing that would be out of line with Scripture. And when we find something, listen, when we find something in our life, in our ministry, that is out of line with Scripture, you know what we do? We have a desire to bring ourselves into alignment with what the Word of God has to say. I'm just here to tell you, the man of God, the spiritual leader, he ought to be known, he ought to be known for his consistency. The scripture compares people who are easily led away in their doctrine and their teaching, it compares them to children. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.14 that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. I I know churches that, you know, one year they're teaching this, and the next year they're teaching that, and whatever is new that comes down the pike, they buy into it and they embrace it. And, uh, and, and you know what the Bible says? The Bible says people like that, they're like little children. They just believe everything. You tell them something and they're going to believe it. The Apostle Paul, he writes, he writes, listen, don't, don't be like that. And don't allow, listen, don't allow your spiritual leader to lead you in that direction. No, no, this does not cancel. This does not cancel the need for growth and development in our personal lives, but it does emphasize the need for steadfastness among spiritual leaders and spiritual people. And I would just say this, be careful, be careful about those who are constantly looking for some new thing, always wanting to be on the ground floor of some new philosophy or new method or new doctrine. Demand, listen, demand of your spiritual leader that they be consistent and steadfast. Number three, and we'll finish here this morning. Spiritual leaders should be known for their passion to warn. Spiritual leaders should be known by their warnings. We see that in verse number two, don't we? And Paul offers three public warnings in this text. Number one, he says this. He says, beware of dogs. Beware of dogs. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, I've seen signs like that in my neighbor's driveway or on my neighbor's door or in this neighborhood or that neighborhood. Well, let me, let me, let me try to explain what he's, what he's saying here. In Middle Eastern culture, dogs were mostly without masters. They had no man to tell them what to do, and they weren't used to anyone telling them what to do. Today, in our culture, most dogs have a home. In fact, some of these homes are nicer than the homes that some of us live in, right? And they're treated pretty well, aren't they? And they're taken care of pretty good. And there's doggy daycares and there's doggy groomers and there's doggy massage, you know, people. I mean, they got it all, don't they? But in Middle Eastern culture, that was not so. Dogs really, really didn't have homes and they didn't have masters. Essentially, they, they were left to wander the streets. They would prey on the most weak and vulnerable for survival. In Middle Eastern culture, to call someone a dog was to denote that they were shameless that they were malignant, that they were snarling, that they were dissatisfied and that they were contentious, always in a fight. They had to live that way or they couldn't survive otherwise. Always on the defensive, always looking to see who they could take advantage of and what they could get out of each and every day. Most Bible scholars believe that Paul was referencing Judaizing teachers who 
who sought influence in the church of Philippi. The, these, were, these were people that sort of just kind of roamed the streets and looked to see who they could, who they could lead astray and, and who they could devour and who, could, who they could uh, destroy. They, uh, they, they, they saw in the church, they saw in the church a, a, a weak and a vulnerable population because, because most of the believers were young and they were immature and they did not have a complete written word of God like we have it. And so Paul would establish a church. He'd be there for a period of time and he'd do his best to teach them doctrine and write things down and share those things with them. But then he'd have to leave. And it wasn't long. It wasn't long before the dogs entered the church. Then they began to look at who could they, who could they destroy and who could they devour with their malignant, snarling, dissatisfied, contentious ways. Paul says, beware of dogs. I say it's still true today that there are those who seek to disrupt gospel work and destroy the unity and oneness that ought to exist around the gospel in the local church. Can I say this? The pastor, listen, the pastor has a responsibility to warn the congregation of such dogs. That's his responsibility. Can I say this is hard to do? Because a lot of dogs appear. They're like wolves in sheep's clothing. They appear to be harmless. They appear to be innocent. I, I, I love every once in a while you go to somebody's house and they've got a massive dog and, and he comes running out the door and he runs in my direction. I start backpedaling, you know. And then they'll say something like this. Oh, he won't hurt you. He's really friendly. And I'm like, he's snarling at me. <laughs> well, yeah, but he's wagging his tail. Well, I've seen dogs wag their tail and still go after something. I mean, that doesn't mean anything, does it? You know, from their perspective, they spend enough time around, oh, that dog's harmless, he's not gonna hurt you. But I'm sitting here saying, I'm not so sure. And pastors, listen, the pastor stands in front of a congregation, he says, be, be careful about that dog. Be careful about that person. I've been around people like that before. Oh, they look innocent. They talk just enough about Jesus to make you think that everything's okay. But watch out. And people sit there and say, oh, that pastor is so unkind. He's not loving he talked about brother so-and-so or he called out this man or that man or this doctrine or that teaching. How could he be like that? And I'm just simply telling you, the Apostle Paul says the pastor has responsibility, authentic spiritual leadership has a responsibility to call out these things. Beware of dogs. Notice number two, beware of evil workers. No doubt he's speaking of the same people that he had in mind when warning against dogs. It's presumed based on what he would write in the next several verses that he, uh, his intent of, uh, the, the intent really of the, these Judaizing influencers was, was to add works to the law. And maybe we'll just go to this one, Brother Larry. I'll, I think that'd probably be the best thing for us. And I'll try not to move around too much. We're having problems with our microphone this morning. I believe that what he's talking about, we're going we're gonna to look at this as we continue the, through the third chapter of the book of Philippians, but we're going to discover in, in the text that there were people that were saying, listen, in order to be saved, you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you've got to do the other thing. And here's what Paul is saying. He is saying this, anytime someone adds something to what the Bible says, they're an evil worker. They don't lose sight of that. When someone says, well, I know what the Bible says, but here's what I think. That person's not who you think they are. That person is an evil worker. Because listen, God, God completed the canon of his word. He's given us everything we need to know. I don't need to make anything up. I don't need, listen, I don't need to force something upon you that isn't there. And when I try to do that, the Bible indicates that I'm an evil worker. And anyone that would try to do that is an evil worker. And Paul says, beware of someone who tries to tell you that you have to do this, that, and the other thing in order to be pleasing in God's sight. No, no such thing is true. Follow God's word. Follow the Bible. Then he says, finally, number three, beware of the concision. 
Beware of the concision. Once again, I believe another clear reference to these same Jewish influencers. The word concision, it means a cutting off or a mutilation. It is likely speaking of Jewish circumcision. True circumcision spiritually concerns those who are in Christ and separate or cut off from the world. But Jewish circumcision physically is the outward act of a fleshly ritual conducted in this day, in Paul's day, primarily among those who are of Hebrew origin. And there were teachers, listen, there were teachers in the church that had taught that the spiritual salvation of lost souls was dependent on one undergoing this physical act bodily. If I were to stand in front of you today and I would say, listen, you can't be saved unless your hair was cut just like mine. He'd say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And yet there were people, listen, there were people, dogs, evil workers, that had entered into the local church, into the church at Philippi, that had said, unless, unless you've undergone circumstances, you cannot be saved. Unless you've had this physical act done with your body, you cannot possibly be born again. You cannot be saved. And Paul says, that's a bunch of baloney. And can I tell you that still, that type of stuff is still true today. And if someone stands in front of you and says, in order to be saved, you've got to wear this and you've got to do this and you've got to go to that church. You've got to be baptized. You've got to eat a little cracker and drink some wine. You've got to give some money. You've got to do some really good things in order to be saved. You look at them and you say, hey, listen, I was told to be aware of you in church. I was told to be aware, to be warned against this kind of doctrine, this kind of teaching. Listen, it is still true. It's true all the way back then. It's still true today. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone saves. No one else saves. Circumcision doesn't save. That baptistry water behind me doesn't save. Communion doesn't save. Giving lots of money doesn't save. Being a really good person doesn't save. Jesus Christ alone saves. Therefore, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Ministry leaders should not hesitate. In fact, they should be known for their willingness to oppose and warn those against those who would teach salvation by anything other than grace through faith. Now, what should you do with this? Finally, my brethren, let me share three statements and I'll be done. Pray. Pray that God would raise up more spiritual leaders who will lead authentically in this way. Do you know there are churches all across this great country that do not have a pastor? There's good men in that church trying to keep it afloat. Listen, we need more preachers. I'm thankful for... Christian young people who go off and study business and study law and study medicine and and who learn trades and that sort of thing. But there ought to be, listen, there ought to be, there ought to be in every church some young men, even some older men who are being stirred up about this idea of preaching God's word. Pray that God would raise up more authentic spiritual leaders. Number two, demand. Demand your spiritual leader exhibit this type of authentic biblical leadership. Let's be done. Let's be done with our pastors looking like the, the princes of the Gentiles. And let's insist, let's insist our pastors, our spiritual leaders look more like Christ. That they come not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And then number three, let me say this, seek to lead those who are under you in the same way. Do you know that every one of us in this room have some leadership, have some influence, have some position of authority over somebody? Maybe your children in your home, maybe your grandchildren, maybe someone at work. Seek to lead in a way that is in line with scriptural teaching And let's resist, let's resist looking like the princes of the Gentiles in our leadership and in our service. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment.